Fifty years ago today, the United States was, at the, was embarking at the beginning of an era of, of exploration of the solar system that will live forever in history. Fifty years ago today, the first spacecraft flew by Mars. It's called Mariner 4. And I think it's fitting that on that 50th anniversary, we complete the initial reconnaissance of the planets with the exploration of Pluto. That's Alan Stern, Principal Investigator of NASA's New Horizons Mission to Pluto. And I'm Steve Mursky for Scientific American Science Talk Podcast. At just before 7.50 a.m. this morning, Eastern Daylight Time, July 14, 2015, the New Horizons spacecraft made its closest approach to Pluto. After a nine-and-a-half-year, three-billion-mile voyage, the ship got within about 7,750 miles from the surface. Exciting data, including images far more resolved than anything we've ever had before, have started coming in. At 8.15 this morning, Alan Stern was joined by Alice Bowman, Mission Operations Manager, and John Grunsfeld, Astronaut and Associate Administrator for the NASA Science Mission Directorate, at a press conference at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory in Laurel, Maryland. Here's an edited version of the audio from that event. You'll also hear the voice of Dwayne Brown from NASA's Office of Communications. Back now to Alan Stern, Principal Investigator of NASA's New Horizons mission to Pluto. A big team of people worked 15 years to do this. They worked under the gun for time. They, they broke records for low-cost outer planet exploration. They did some amazing feats, and we saw one of them just last weekend in terms of that, um, uh, that mission operations rescue of this flyby that produces images just like the one that you saw and many more that will be raining to the ground beginning tomorrow. But stay tuned. Stay tuned because our spacecraft is not in communication with the Earth. We've programmed it to be spending its time taking important data sets that it can only take today. And over the next period of about uh, 12 or 13 hours, the spacecraft will continue to take that data, and then it will transmit a message back to the Earth for about 20 minutes at 9 p.m. Eastern time, in which we'll find out how it's doing, whether it survived the passage through the Pluto system, and hopefully it did, and we're, we're counting on that. But there's a little bit of drama because this is true exploration. New Horizons is flying into the unknown. And then tomorrow morning, we should see the beginning of a 16-month data waterfall. You'll be seeing more and more about Pluto beginning tomorrow. But if we could put that image up, that, uh, this, which is now the, the best image, it has a resolution of about four kilometers per pixel, which is approximately a 1,000 times better than we could do, even with the biggest and baddest gun telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope, three billion miles away at Earth. New Horizons took that image yesterday, downlinked it to the ground. The bits in that image flew at the speed of light for four and a half hours, received at the NASA's Deep Space Network, transmitted here. The image was open this morning, and how about a round of applause for that beautiful planet? Okay, it's been a great morning. And give your name and affiliation. And Joel Achenbach with the Washington Post. Tell us about Pluto. What are we looking there? Is, are there mountains? Or, are there uh, craters? Tell us about what you see. Sure. Can we cue that image back up? Okay, so... Uh, this image is oriented with Pluto's uh, with north to the top. 
Uh, and so the, the dark regions that you see are near Pluto's equator. Uh, the planet is about 1,500 miles across to give you a scale. Uh, it's got a thin or a rarefied uh, nitrogen atmosphere, which you can't see in this image because it's clear, just like looking through um, uh, other tenuous atmospheres. But what you can see in this image, you can see regions of various kinds of brightness, very dark regions near the equator, very bright regions just to the north of that, uh, broad intermediate zone um, over the pole. And what we know is that um, on the surface we see the history of impacts, we see a history of surface activity in terms of some features that um, we might be able to identify as tectonic, indicating internal activity in the planet at some point in its past or maybe even uh, in its present. And what we also know is, is this is a, uh, clearly a world where both geology and atmospheric climatology play a role because Pluto has strong atmospheric cycles. It snows on the surface. Uh, the snows sublimate and go back into the atmosphere each 248-year orbit. Those snows have been observed to move around on the surface, seen from 3 billion miles away. Uh, we look at that image, and frankly, if you're a scientist like I am, you want to see all the supporting data. You want to see the topography that we'll get from stereo so that we can determine what's high and what's low. You, you want to see color data so that we can start to identify the different compositional units. You want to see the composition spectroscopy so that we can determine what those different areas are made from. You want to see the thermal maps so that we can understand are the, the, the brightest areas, the coldest areas, for example, where the snow is, has uh, plated out, or is it some other story that Pluto is trying to tell us? You also want to see higher resolution images. And in fact, by tomorrow, we'll be able to show you imagery with 10 times the resolution of that image. And eventually, as the data continues to come to the ground, we'll have imagery that's better still, dramatically better still, in fact. So there's a lot more to teach us uh, with the data that's coming down. And we just couldn't be happier about the performance of the spacecraft and, frankly, about the performance of the Pluto system. Hi, Stacy Severn, Star Talk Radio. And I have a question from one of our listeners. Um, how long can New Horizons continue to transmit before its power expires? I'll take a crack at that. Um, New Horizons is powered by uh, uh, RTG. That stands for Radio Isotope Thermoelectric Generator. That's the same kind of power supply that other outer planet and deep space missions that fly too far from the sun for solar arrays to work. Um, that's what the, we all use. That's a technology developed jointly by NASA and the Department of Energy. And uh, the actual power source inside the RTG is the element plutonium, which, by the way, was named for the planet Pluto in the 1930s. So we sent a little plutonium back to Pluto. That plutonium uh, produces heat, and from the heat, thermocouples convert that into DC electric power for the spacecraft. When we launched... New Horizons um, was producing, through that RTG, about 250 watts. But that declines every year as uh, uh, the plutonium decays. And it's currently producing about 202 watts to power the spacecraft and all the instruments. But every year, three less watts. And as that declines, uh, eventually we'll get to a point where we can't operate the primary spacecraft computer and the communication system. We've estimated that uh, that point will be reached sometime in the mid-2030s, roughly 20 years from now. At that point, the spacecraft will be approximately 100 astronomical units from the sun. And so over those next 20 years, 
if the spacecraft continues to be healthy, um, it could operate and return scientific data, uh, first from a potential Kuiper Belt flyby of a small planetesimal, the building blocks of planets like Pluto, and then we have a chance to go further to explore the deep reaches of the heliosphere like Voyager did, and to do that with much more modern instruments, much more sensitive instruments that are aboard this spacecraft, and, and hopefully uh, uh, return data that um, will really add to the storehouse of what we know about our environment in the solar system, and potentially even to cross that interstellar boundary and start to sample interstellar space with this much more modern instrumentation. Can we go with the gentleman here? Uh, yeah, John Wenz with Popular Mechanics. Uh, I'm just wondering how, when the data comes in, it'll be prioritized. I know there's a prioritization, especially because it's such a slow, almost 56K connection coming back from Pluto. So how has it been sorted to be prioritized as it comes back in over the next few months? Well, that's, that's actually a, a nuanced story. So uh, let me start by saying over the next couple of months, the spacecraft, well, for the, for the next couple of weeks, the spacecraft is going to be sending some of the highest priority data back to the ground. But then beginning uh, around the 1st of August, we're going to transition to a mode where the spacecraft is sending um, what we call our low-speed data sets to the ground. They're not coming to the ground at a lower speed, but they were taken and recorded at a lower speed. Those are easier to, uh, to, um, uh, to plan for. And we chose those to come to the ground first to give Alice and her team a much-needed break from what's been a six-month historic encounter of seven days around-the-clock operations. So we wanted to give them a break, and that's why we're going to send the low speed to the ground in August and September, and then they're going to crank it back up. We'll start the planning for that in just a couple of weeks. Uh, we've agreed with NASA long time ago, which data sets were first priority, second priority, and third priority, and we'll send them down in that order. Um, initially, we're going to send all of the data down as a browse data set that's, um, that's compressed on board the spacecraft uh, by a, a factor of several so that we can get it down much more quickly. And then, with that safely on the ground, we'll go back and send everything a second time in an uncompressed manner. The entire process that I just described will take a period of 16 months, and so we expect to finish the last of the data transmit in October or November of next year. Okay, I'm going to take... Before, let me oh, just ask Ellen or, or Alice, what is the actual data rate? Because I think 56K is, is much too high. <laughs> right. Yeah, we wish it was 56K. Um, <laughs> Well, we uh, rate step. We call it rate stepping. So as the um, spacecraft gets, as viewed from the ground, higher um, in the sky, and as that uh, ground antenna um, increases in elevation following that spacecraft, we can increase the data data rate. So at the lowest rate, at to 10 degree elevation in the horizon, we're at about a thousand bits per second. Now, when we transition into a spin mode, we can actually get higher rates. And so at the top of that, so the max data rate is about um, 4,000 bits per second downlink. Hi, Ken Kramer for Northeast Astronomy Forum in New York. My question is about the cratering on Sharon versus Pluto. Looks like in the images you released uh, a day or so ago, there were a lot of chasms and craters at, at Charon, and this image that you just showed here shows eh, maybe one crater. I wonder, um, is, that, is that real? Do you see a lot less craters 
Uh, and why would that be? Why is there such a difference between Charon and Pluto? Thank you. Well, I think you make a perceptive observation that Pluto and Charon look very different. And we've known that even from the Earth, but now we can see how dramatically different they really are. Um, to my eye, these images show a much younger surface on Pluto and a much older and more battered surface on Charon. Uh, as we can actually put numbers to this by counting the, the craters as a function of their size and compare it to impact models, I hope that we'll actually be able to establish the, the, uh, the ages of different surface units on Pluto and on Charon. As to why Pluto looks so much younger, either its internal engine um, continues to run and there's active processes that are taking place, um, or those atmospheric processes are, are uh, themselves uh, covering up the, the, uh, uh, the geology and covering up the craters. We'll, we'll be able to know that when we get the higher resolution data and the compositional data and the other data sets that I, that I mentioned, because with those various data sets, we can really read the whole story. And it's ambiguous uh, today for a couple of reasons. One, we just got the data. And second, we don't have the supporting data sets to really unravel the whole story. So stay tuned. Yes, Chris Blair at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center. As we go through and monitor all the great questions from all our fans uh, staying online with us, uh, first question is from at Technomagos, and it is, does any of the surface features on Pluto suggest possible tectonics? <laughs> I'm not sure, and that's an honest answer. Uh, I think we really have to have a little time to work with the data and to actually look at it carefully on a computer versus seeing it on the screen for a few seconds or on the screens over in the, in the, in the science analysis area for just a few seconds. Um, but we're going to have a chance to, uh, to do that today, and I think that by the time that uh, the experts take a look, uh, we can report back to you tomorrow with, with a first analysis. And one more question, Chris. Excellent, thank you. And as NASA is always encouraging our youth to study STEM, this question comes from one of our younger fans. Uh, from Jessica Lucas, she tweets, my nine-year-old son wants to know how long did it take to build the spacecraft New Horizons? Uh, New Horizons uh, was built in a period of four years and two months, but that includes the design phase as well as the construction and testing. The entire project from the time that we got authority to proceed from NASA until the time that we launched was four years and two months, which, by the way, is pretty short uh, for outer planet missions and even for planetary missions in general. But we were under the gun to make the Jupiter gravity assist uh, launch window in early 2006, uh, and we were able to do that. And as a result, we were able to make the encounter today. Had we not made that launch window, we would have had to fly another four years and not encounter Pluto until 2019. So uh, we were very well aware during the period that we were designing and building New Horizons that there was a big incentive to make that launch window. And uh, the Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory team, the contractor team, those of us uh, on science at Southwest Research uh, responsible for payload development, I think everybody knew that it was very important. And, you know, a lot of people who really sacrificed uh, family time, nights and weekends, a lot of other people didn't think that it could really be done but this team managed to do it, and they deserve a huge amount of credit. They not only built that spacecraft and got it launched in, in that um, unbelievably short time, um, but it's worked essentially flawlessly for the whole nine and a half years. 
Cliff McMurray at Astra Magazine. What uh, is the maximum resolution you hope to get from the pictures you're taking in the permanently shadowed areas with uh, Sharon light? Ah, well that, that's a little bit of a difficult question to answer because it depends um, on, on some of the subtleties of the data analysis. So first, for those who don't know uh, what the question is about, now that the spacecraft is beyond Pluto, when it looks back at the planet, it's seeing uh, the night side uh, and just a thin crescent of uh, sunlit terrains. But we actually arranged the flyby to occur on a day when Pluto's largest moon, Charon, is on the other side and sunlight is reflecting off Charon and illuminating those night side terrains. So we looked back with our cameras at those night side terrains illuminated by Charon light and we can see in those terrains. However, we're looking back into the glare of the sun now that we're past Pluto. And the sunlight creates um, uh, various optical effects on the images that can make it difficult uh, to see the details that are in them. The, the native resolution of those images is, is pretty good, but because it's so dark, uh, the signal to noise is low, and we'll have to actually um, uh, add the pixels together in a way that reduces resolution until we build up the signal well enough that we can actually pick out individual surface units. How far we'll have to degrade that resolution in order to get the good signal to noise is difficult to predict in advance because we've never turned the cameras back to look at the sun. Um, we didn't want to risk that during the flight out to Pluto. So we'll have to see what those optical effects are and then see how well we can um, uh, produce high resolution versus medium resolution imagery. Uh, Kelly Beatty with Sky and Telescope. You mentioned yesterday that you've seen spectral data for frost of nitrogen and methane. Is it, and now that you've seen the picture, is it fair to say that it snows on Pluto? It sure looks that way. I'm Bob McDonald from uh, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, congratulations on closest approach. But that was also the most dangerous time for the spacecraft. If anything was going to go wrong, that was it. In the worst case scenario, if you don't hear from it tonight, how much science do you have at this point? I don't think that we're going to lose the spacecraft. We've estimated, we've estimated based upon uh, uh, a variety of different experts making numerical models of how much dust and debris might be in the system, the probability of loss of mission. And uh, we set upper limits on that probability of loss at around two parts in, uh, in 10,000. So you could fly hundreds of New Horizons through the system uh, and expect all of them to survive. So it's a very low probability, but we always caution that we are flying into the unknown. As you know, we've, we've been furiously transmitting data to the ground in the last few days, and those are called fail-safe data sets. And the concept behind those fail-safe data sets is identical to the concept used on the Apollo missions, particularly the early Apollo missions. As soon as uh, the mission commander would step to the surface of the moon and say a few words, for history, um, they would immediately co collect the first sample. It was called a contingency sample in case something went wrong and they had to terminate the rest of the, the, the spacewalk, come back into the lander, and, and leave. So they had a little bit of something guaranteed. And that's what we've been doing over the last few days. In fact, we designed this more than uh, about four years ago. And so we went through and looked at the data sets that had been collected on final approach and selected for each of our primary mission objectives, uh, some samples of that data, like the wonderful image that you just saw, but also some color data, some compositional spectroscopy, 
ultraviolet spectroscopy looking at the surfaces and atmospheres, uh, and some of our particles and plasma data was all sent to the ground. And they've obviously revolutionized our knowledge about uh, Pluto and its satellites already. Um, however, it would be, it would be uh, gilding the lily a little bit if I, if I didn't tell you that 99% of the data is still on the spacecraft, and some of the most important stuff is, is in that. So it would be a great disappointment if uh, New Horizons had been lost to a debris strike. Uh, but I think that um, I think the spacecraft's going to do just fine. I, I read plots with uh, Reuters. Uh, for Alice, I can't really see you there. Um, can, based on the information uh, last night and the readjusted uh, diameter of Pluto, how exactly um, exactly how close did New Horizons come at closest approach this morning? Do you think? Um, well, that's really a, a navigation question. Um, I can tell you that uh, we were 72 seconds early for that hitting that aim point. And um, Alan, do you know exactly how what the distance was from the plan was 77750 7, um, miles. We, we, our nav predicts the very latest orbit determination indicated that we were going to be somewhere in the vicinity of, of about 70 kilometers closer to Pluto than the precise aim point. That's still inside the the target box, the target window that we wanted to fly through, we did fly through it, but a little bit off-center, well within spec. Hey, everybody. Dan Leone with Space News. I suppose this is a question for Alan. Uh, when can we go back to Pluto? <laughs> <laughs> I have secretly been working on a lander proposal. <laughs> Because I had a pretty good bet somebody would ask me a question like that. Have you really? Yeah. Uh, I do think that we'll return to the Pluto system. I think that it's, 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 it's so scientifically interesting and so compelling that we'll want us in an orbiter or a lander mission in the future. Um, you know, but doing a mission like that is, is going to be a lot tougher than New Horizons because we'll want to come to a stop. And that'll mean uh, developing some technology uh, to be able to do that particularly when we wanted also to cross the solar system in a reasonable amount of time and not take 40 years to get there because you need to travel slowly, but to be able to travel fast and then also come to a stop. Um, there are some very good concepts that people have, very preliminary concepts for how we can do follow-up missions. Uh, but I think first we need to really, really see this data come to the ground and analyze it for a period of some years because we don't know the right questions to ask and therefore the right instruments to put on a lander or orbiter. Um, so I really think that it's a little premature. We're all excited too, and we're going to want to send new kinds of uh, powerful instruments there. But uh, I think first, the, the right thing to do is to is to really analyze the data that we have on the ground, and and then come to that question a little bit little bit down the road. Okay, so we're going to have to um, turn it over to Dr. Grunsfeld for closing remarks. Well, I think you've gotten a little bit of a sense of this great adventure of science that we're on. I'll just mention, because I've been watching it, if you go to eyes, eyes.nasa.gov, you can see the deep space network signals. Uh, so you'll be able to see when, uh, almost live, when, you know, when the deep space network is looking, uh, and then you know, follow our, our story, because we'll certainly keep you informed uh, when New Horizons phones home. What we've seen already from Pluto is that it's a complex, interesting world. Uh, right now, the Dawn spacecraft is orbiting uh, 
the dwarf planet Ceres in the main asteroid belt, and we found that Ceres is really interesting. Of course, you've all been following Curiosity. Uh, there was a lot of discussion before we landed the Mars Science Laboratory. Is Mars relatively straightforward or very complex? And the Spirit and Opportunity rovers gave us a glimpse, and now Curiosity has shown us that Mars is very complex, uh, a whole world, you know, much like the Earth. We have spacecraft orbiting the Earth trying to tell our story, uh, which is even more complex. Our atmosphere is really tough to understand. And, of course, the existence of life on Earth forever changed the atmosphere and the geology of Earth. Uh, so we're just scratching the surface of our solar system, and there's, of course, much, much more. Juno will arrive next year uh, at Jupiter. Uh, next year we'll launch both the InSight Geophysical Monitoring Station on Mars and the OSIRIS-REx mission to an asteroid to actually do a touch-and-go on the asteroid and bring samples back. So this is just the most incredible time for planetary science, and I think it's uh, just fitting that you're all here showing this great interest for this incredible achievement, uh, the capstone event of our reconnaissance of the solar system. Congratulations, Alice. Congratulations, Alan. Uh, I hope all of you enjoy the day and learn a lot and communicate it to all of, all of your subscribers and readers uh, because this is an incredible journey. This is true exploration. I'm thrilled to be here.